Welcome back to Last Week in Medicine. It's February 24th, uh, 2022. I'm Stephen Jenkins, and I'm here with Austin Rupp today. How's it going, Austin? It's it's going good, Stephen. I'm... <laughs> I think I'm healthy today. <laughs> <laughs> not not out with a broken leg, not out with uh, COVID. Overall, things are going okay. Yeah, but, you know, always transient um, in this household. But yeah, right now we're we're doing well. I I'm supposed to be in Montana um, in a cabin outside of Cook City, but here I am with you, which is equally equally as enjoyable. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that, that is uh, a that is a bummer. I hope, I hope, uh, I hope your, your friends who are out skiing without you don't find any wolves. Yes. There's, I mean, you know, it's like minus 15 there like at night. Um, so maybe, uh, maybe <laughs> there might, they might come back absent a few toes. Um, and the avalanche danger has also been a little bit, uh, hairy. So lots of things to, to navigate up there but i'm sure they're having a great time and i'm jealous and yeah if they see wolves i think i'm just gonna which is my you know for our listeners that's my life dream is to see wolves in the wild have a chance encounter with wolves in the wild not two miles away on the yellowstone highway through some spotting <laughs> scope where someone says that brown dot is a wolf and you say yeah okay um but if they have a chance encounter with wolves um i'm just gonna go up there and stake out the rest of the winter by myself um you know Man. to do it sounds sounds like healthy life choices yeah so. but how are you what's new in your world uh not not too much we celebrated birdie's first birthday on uh back a little before valentine so that was fun um and uh yeah it's just fun having a baby in the house who's like she's very busy very active she's almost walking she's just you know randomly stands up in the middle of the room and looks around and you know waits for us to applaud her and then and she's just like hilarious. So it's, it's been a lot of fun, but yeah, otherwise funny how they like, they know it's like per- so performative, isn't it? Like Gus <laughs> has these faces that he knows make you laugh and just pulls them out, you know, all day. That's um, what, that's, what's great is you're like training each other. Right. And so I think that's part of why my, my boys were pretty naughty is because I would always laugh whenever they did naughty stuff. And so I just mm-hmm. encourage them to keep being mischievous. So I'm trying not to do that as much with her, but I really can't help it when she does something like she growls at everyone. And I just think that's hilarious. So she, so she keeps growling cause we laugh when she does it anyway. But uh, just throws food on the floor and then looks at you like, what are you going to take? Are you going to laugh? Because I find this hilarious. Oh, I do not laugh at that. But luckily, we have dogs that that take care of the mess. So likewise, likewise. Yeah. So uh, but I guess, yeah, the good news is it seems like COVID uh, cases are dropping in Utah. Finally, hopefully that's true around most of the country and world. Um, But very rough uh, beginning of February. And, uh, but now it seems like things are starting to chill out a little bit. Yeah. Just, you know, cycle will probably repeat itself, but, um, you know, I do, I mean, Boris Johnson says it's, or is that his name? Isn't that the prime minister of England? Now I sound like an idiot. What's his name? Yeah. Yeah. That's Boris. All right. Good. Uh, he says it's time to learn to live with COVID. So I suppose, you know, 
he's always right. He's always my source for. He's like the accurate. last person I would take advice from, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I don't know. I think it does feel like there's a little bit of a shift, huh? For better or for worse. But yes, numbers are down, and our group is feeling um, a weight off the shoulders momentarily. It seems. So, uh huh. So we just good. we're just we're entering this new phase called waiting for the next variant. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. Well, um, in, in light of the, you know, the inevitable next variant, we, we need to be ready. We need to have our, our armamentarium ready. So they finally published the, the paper on Paxlovid. We've been using Paxlovid a lot, despite there being a shortage of it. But a lot of people <laughs> in Utah and, and throughout the country and world have been getting Paxlovid. So, but now we finally have the trial to review. So you're, you're going to take us through that one. Yeah, not just a press release. And um, yeah, finally here. So yes, let's talk about oral nirmatrelvir for high-risk non-hospitalized adults with COVID-19. Uh, this was authored by Dr. Hammond and colleagues and was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on 2-16-2022. Um, I am going to refer to this medication as Paxlovid moving forward, but <laughs> yeah, this is, um, <laughs> Nermatrelvir yeah. plus Ritonavir. Yeah. It's a mouthful. Yes. Nermatrelvir plus Ritonavir is a medication. It's an oral medication. Many of you likely know this, but just a little background, you know, the search for effective COVID therapies continues, but the therapeutics, the therapeutics, now we have therapeutics, but, um, Nermatrelvir is, is oral and it's an antiviral agent that targets the, uh, three chymotrypsin like cysteine protease enzyme, AKA MPRO, which mm. is essential in viral replication. Um, and you know, all the pre Limb studies showed potent MPRO inhibition and um, lower, you know, SARS-CoV-2 titers, especially in the lung. And then dosing studies, you know, said that 300 milligrams um, twice daily or Q12 hours is the way to go and is safe anyway. So um, prelim studies have been favorable. So this was a phase two to three double blind placebo controlled randomized trial as an aside. Um, we can do two and three together now, I guess. So good. Um, but patients were greater than 18. They had confirmed COVID and they had symptom onset of less than five days prior to randomization and at least one sign or symptom of COVID on day of randomization. They also has to, had to have a characteristic or comorbidity associated with high risk of progression to severe COVID, which in this instance was age greater than 60, BMI above 25, smoking cigarettes, uh, immunosuppressive disease, iatrogenic immunosuppression, and then chronic lung, cardiovascular, kidney, or sickle cell disease, hypertension, diabetes, cancer, neurodevelopmental disorders, or other medically complex conditions. But, um, you know, patients at risk for high progression, more or less. Um, exclusions included vaccination, huge one. Um, previous COVID infection or hospitalization, which I think for out to be not true, maybe later, but we'll talk about that. But anyway, vaccination, prior infection, anticipated need for hospitalization within 48 hours and prior receipt of convalescent plasma were all important exclusion criterias. Um, in the supplementary appendix, they also mentioned pregnancy, breastfeeding, and um, several other conditions that, you know, are probably not all that important, but pregnant and breastfeeding patients were excluded. The primary outcome was the percentage of patients with COVID-related hospitalization or death from any cause through 28 days, which I think is a good primary outcome. 
Um, secondary outcomes and analyses included various ways of, of quote unquote intention to treating. So they make a big deal about whether or not folks were randomized within five or three days of symptoms. And they actually say that a secondary outcome was um, the group with, that was randomized within five days, although that was part of their inclusion criteria. So a little bit complicated there. Um, and they also talk about subgroup analyses that were evaluated um, and the safety endpoints included adverse events, serious adverse events and adverse events leading to discontinuation of treatment. So primary outcome, hospitalization or death, and then some randomization stuff and obviously a safety profile. So they looked at 2,246 patients at 343 sites worldwide. Of those, 1,120 received Paxlovid and 1,126 received placebo. Um, 2,102 completed safety follow-up. Um, and again, the dosing regimen, they were randomized to 300 milligrams, Q12 hours times five days of Paxlovid or placebo. The patient characteristics were similar between the, the both groups, the two groups. The median age was 46, and 70% of these patients were white. Um, it was notable. I thought that 80% had a BMI of greater than 25 as their pre-existing condition. 61% had two pre-existing conditions. 65% um, in total were randomized within three days of symptoms, and 94% were not expected to receive monoantibody treatment, monoclonal antibody treatment, but um, I'm not sure how important that is, but they do make a big deal about designations of patients who were expected or not expected to receive antibodies. And then they, in, you know, table one, 50% of patients had positive serologies, which I took that to mean had been previously infected, but they don't comment on that, um, that I could find. And so, you know, the exclusion criteria that wasn't a real exclusion criteria, it seems. Okay, so the final intention to treat analysis, which again was treatment within three days of symptoms and not expected to receive monoclonal antibodies, um, within that, that group of patients, 0.72% in the Paxlovid group versus 6.45% in the placebo group met the primary outcome. So um, that was an absolute risk reduction of 5.81% and a relative risk reduction of 88.9%, which was statistically significant. They then talk about, you know, an interim analysis and the quote unquote first key secondary analysis, which was actually, you know, what I thought they reported as their, you know, sort of primary outcome and inclusion criteria. But anyway, all the numbers were very similar. And within that quote unquote first key secondary analysis, it, the numbers were 0.77% in the Paxlovid group versus 6.31% in the placebo group with a relative risk reduction of 87.8%. And, and, you know, across various analyses. It was all like 0.7 versus about six point something. So, um, you know, notable. Um, the Within the Paxlovid patients, zero died, um, while 13, 13 patients within the placebo group died. And they state that the Kaplan-Meier estimates for the primary event, again, were 0.72% in the Paxlovid group versus 6.53% in the um, placebo group. The subgroup analyses were consistent across all groups, except for attenu significant attenuation of, of you know, this result within the seropositive patients at baseline and those expected to receive monoclonal antibody treatment, which again, I, I hesitate to put a lot of weight on that. 
Um, Paxlovid also reduced viral load with an overall reduction um, by a factor of 10. The overall adverse events between both groups were similar, 22.6% uh, in Paxlovid versus 23.9% in placebo. Um, they ultimately did not attribute a lot of those to Paxlovid or placebo, um, you know, 7.8 versus 3.8%, according to the investigators. And most of the difference there was from dyscusia and diarrhea, um, which were higher in the Paxlovid group than the placebo group. Um, they note the 12 patients had adverse events that were life-threatening, two in Paxlovid versus 10 in placebo, and less than 0.8% of adverse events that led to discontinuation of the drug, um, according to the investigator. So, um, you know, I think, again, they were a little, it was a little bit complicated in interim analyses and intention to treat versus modified intention to treat one and two, but all the numbers were similar with, um, you know, an absolute risk reduction of five to 6%, um, which I think is significant and robust. You know, it's notable that this is an oral medication, that it's effective against Omicron and, um, you know, relatively well tolerated according to this safety profile. So a robust, a robust uh, result that I think has influenced our management. It's good to have the data. And those were my thoughts. What were yours, Dr. Jenkins? Uh, yeah, I agree that uh, pretty, pretty nice trial. Um, definitely more impressive than any other oral agent for COVID that's out there. And so I think, yeah, I mean, hopefully you know, the biggest issues we've had are supplies. So hopefully the drug companies can ramp up production enough that we're kind of ready to deal with the next wave so that people can actually get this. Cause yeah, I mean, it's very well tolerated five day course, you know, I would hope we'd be able to use it as much as possible in the future. Um, I'm sure it's not cheap. I did not look up the cost, but fancy new designer drug, it's going to be pricey, but if it can keep you out of the hospital or keep you from dying, it's worth it agreed yeah so good on yeah. them well while we're talking about useful covid therapies now i will <laughs> now i will share pivot. Uh, yeah pivot to this uh so so in uh jama internal medicine there was a, a new paper put out uh, last week uh the efficacy of ivermectin treatment on disease progression among adults with mild to moderate covid-19 and comorbidities also called the iTech randomized clinical trial. So as we all know, ivermectin has been touted by various personalities um, and, and used quite a bit um, because some people think it's effective against uh, treating COVID. So this was a nice randomized controlled trial. Um, it was not placebo controlled, it was open label, um, but they had 490 patients that were randomized to either five days of ivermectin plus standard of care or just standard of care alone. You had to be 50 years or older with at least one comorbidity, um, and you had to have mild to moderate disease. They excluded patients who didn't have symptoms and patients who were hypoxemic. Uh, so it turns out ivermectin did not reduce the primary outcome, which was proportion of patients with progression to severe COVID-19 disease, which they defined as hypoxemia requiring supplemental oxygen. And it did not reduce any of the secondary outcomes either. So this is another trial that shows ivermectin <laughs> does not work. And, uh, you know, I'd like for it to be the final nail in the coffin for ivermectin, but that's, you know, become so politicized that there will still be people prescribing it and using it. And, and, 
you know, there was another paper published in the same issue. I guess these are just published online. They're not, they're not in, officially in print, but that also looked at ivermectin and associations with uh, kind of regional variations. Uh, did you have anything on that one? Yeah, this, this just was sort of an interesting like letter correspondence. Um, I think also in JAMA that, that tried to link quartile of Republican vote within a county or with like within a region, two counties that prescribed more ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And it's obvious that that's what they were trying to do at the, at the onset, you know, like this, this was a hypothesis that you're sort of going fishing for and trying to find potentially, but there was an association between increased prescriptions of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and the quartile of the Republican vote within that County. And so, um, you know, not surprising, I suppose, um, with the, yeah. the, pol the politicization of all of this. Yeah. I think the biggest booster of ivermectin was Fox news, like, so. which is, I, I, you know, I don't, I mean, I actually had a moment where I was like, am I, you know, I, we, I are, you know, circles like were from the beginning told and trained that ivermectin is not effective. And that is true. I'm not debating that, you know, this proves it. Lots of research proves it. But at one point, you know, I did have to stop and say, like, do I know, like, am I sure of that? Like, I'm, mm -hmm. you know, people have told me that and I hear it on, you know, whatever MSNBC, not that I watch MSNBC, but it's like, <laughs> you know, it's so polarizing that am I even sure that I understand this? And then you do go to the primary literature and confirm it. But, you know, I like made sure I did that at one point because people were asking for it. And it's like, you know, it's a hard no, but am I sure that I'm right in my stance? And so, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think it just brings up a lot of questions of like, why you know whose side is what and right, how is this right. fun and where, what's up and what's down and why is someone telling you that's up and that's down and you know i think again we do have the primary literature to back us up in this instance for sure but at the beginning it was like what if ivermectin is effective then we're all right. gonna have egg on our face you know and look like idiots and are we willing to take that risk sure sure and i think um you know it's interesting in early pandemic people were proposing all sorts of medications, you know, like hydroxychloroquine was a big one. Um, azithromycin was a big one. And I felt like for the most part, we were pretty good about suspending judgment and waiting for the trials, right? Like I wasn't jumping on the bandwagon of prescribing stuff without good trial evidence. And if I think if a trial had come out that showed ivermectin had benefit, I would have been, you know, very interested in that. To me, what was bizarre was that there was like really no good data to support it. And yet it became such a huge phenomenon. So I, mean, I think there was maybe like an observational study that showed maybe a possible benefit that people latched on to. But yeah, anyway, I think, uh, you know, ivermectin, it's great anti-parasitic drug. Um, maybe it will help cure some Republican brain worms. But uh, other than that, I, I don't think it's doing much for COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you're right. I, I, you, that's certainly what we hope is that we suspend disbelief, try not to overly politicize things and go to the primary data. But then there's also, you know, maybe to lean a little bit to the right, like how much is, of this is pharma driven and, you know, Paxlovid has it's better for them if Paxlovid works and ivermectin doesn't. Right. You know, so it's like. 
sounds very conspiratorial. <laughs> no, is, I think, is, but, but then you look at like the flip side, like monoclonal antibodies are very effective and the right has been pushing those pretty hard all along. Right. And so, mm-hmm. um, I just think it's important not to get any medical advice from cable news or pundits. That's a good, good policy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All, all right. right. You had well, another COVID paper. Yes, I did. Um, but switching gears a little bit, I just thought that this was, so this is a paper called Clinical Outcomes Among Patients with One-Year Survival Following Intensive Care Unit Treatment for COVID-19. It was in JAMA back in January. Um, I just think better understanding the long-term effects of COVID across the spectrum is beneficial in that we still don't really have a good sense of um, the burden of disease and care and you know, um, just trying to understand kind of what, what, you know, what is long COVID? How long does it last? What are the symptoms? You know, if you have severe versus mild illness, what are your long-term, you know, issues? And so, um, you know, just thought this was interesting and kind of has the idea of, yeah, you'll probably survive, but you know, what are the long-term effects? So, um, this was, this study looked at patients admitted to 11 Dutch ICUs during the first COVID surge back in March through July of 2020. And basically they just sent questionnaires to these folks a year after hospitalization to objectively try to objectively quantify their symptoms. Um, they use various scores and scales to do so that I'm not going to go into the details of, but these are, you know, validated scores and systems. Um, So there were 452 eligible patients, 246 completed the questionnaire. Um, In general, these were sick folks. So, you know, 61 um, years old on average, 72% male, um, average BMI was 28 and 24% had a chronic condition. Um, 82% were mechanically ventilated and they had a median ICU stay of 18.5 days with a median hospital stay of 30 days. So these are, you know, these are really pretty sick patients that are in the hospital for a long time. Of this group, physical symptoms were reported by 74% of patients, mental symptoms by 26 and cognitive symptoms by 16%. Um, the most commonly reported symptoms were quote unquote weakened conditioned at 39 or weakened condition at 39%, joint stiffness at 26% and muscle weakness at 25%. It's also notable that 56% of patients met an objectively established quote unquote fatigue cutoff, which again, is an objectively, you know, validated score of fatigue, I guess. Um, you know, I think this is a rough estimate, but does again, help quantify the burden of disease, you know, three quarters of patients who are admitted to the ICU are probably going to have lingering um, physical symptoms. And, you know, needs to be, this needs to be replicated in folks with mild disease who would presumably have way lower numbers um, and compared against, you know, all ICU comers, which I'm sure is some somewhat of a, or is available somewhere, but I didn't, you know, look into that. But one year later, 75% have physical symptoms. So, you know, um, they're not thriving, presumably. Mm-hmm. and deserves to be mentioned. So that was that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's been surprising to me, even people with mild infections can, can develop pretty severe, long lasting symptoms. And, you know, I'm still not hundred percent sure what long COVID is. And, um, I think there is a phenomenon and it, it, it probably, you know, falls on the spectrum of other, you know, post-viral kind of syndromes, that, you know, maybe connected to things like myalgic encephalitis, chronic fatigue syndrome type type diseases. And so, you know, I think it's something we definitely have to watch for and be aware of and not, you know, not ignore, 
minimize or sweep under the rug. I think, you know, I know at least one person personally who has kind of developed a, a, you know, type of syndrome like that, where just completely wiped out all the time, barely able to, to function or work. And it's really sad. Um, and I've seen quite a few people, you know, even on like social media or Twitter, people that were, you know, pretty hardworking, ambitious people who are like, just kind of laid out now, just because of a, you know, fairly mild COVID infection. So it's, it's a, it's a bad virus. Yeah, there was an annals correspondence. This was like, maybe even a year ago or so, but you know, some ER physician, if I recall, wrote a letter that was like, I got COVID, I got long COVID and my life is ruined. You know, yeah. it's like that kind of makes it, hit, you know, makes it hit home a little bit more too. I think, you know, that it's relatable and could happen to you, you know? Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, worth keeping in mind that it's not just the acute phase that we need to be aware of and deal with as effectively mm-hmm. as possible, although there's no way to deal with it effectively. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's change gears from COVID. Um, the next paper I wanted to talk about uh, was published originally in, online um, in December in the Annals of Internal Medicine, but now it's out in their public and their uh, February issue. So it's called Safety and Efficiency of Diagnostic Strategies for Ruling Out Pulmonary Embolism in Clinically Relevant Patient Subgroups. And so this is just getting at the the question of what is the best strategy for ruling out pulmonary embolism. Uh, So this meta-analysis looked at over 20,000 patients in 16 different studies that evaluated different risk scores like the Wells score, uh, the Geneva score, and the YEARS algorithm, plus different thresholds of D-dimer testing. And the two main things they were looking at were safety, which was the rate of diagnostic failures, meaning how many people you miss that actually do have a PE, and efficiency, which was how many people you could rule out without getting imaging studies. So the safest strategy they identified was using the Wells score plus traditional D-dimer cutoff of 500, which only missed 0.36% of PEs. So that's a pretty good strategy. But the trade-off to that was that they could only rule out 26% of people without getting a CT scan or a VQ scan. So if you use the age-adjusted D-dimer, which is, I think, used pretty extensively now, the predictive failure rate was slightly higher at 0.76%, which I think is still pretty good. Uh, But this strategy lets you rule out 32% of patients without imaging. Um, And then if you use the pretest probability-adjusted D-dimer, which we've talked about before on the podcast that uses a thousand for your cutoff. If you're low risk, well score and 500, if you're moderate risk, you end up missing about 2.8% of PEs, which is quite a bit higher than you see with the fixed or age adjusted D dimer, but you can rule out a lot more people, um, up to 47% of patients without getting imaging. So I think what this meta-analysis shows is that there really is just a trade-off. You know, if you want really safe, then you're going to have to do more scans. But if you are okay with missing, you know, two to 3% of patients who actually do have a PE, then, you know, you can use these other adjusted D-dimers and avoid a lot more CT scans. And I think, you know, there is something to be said for trying not to do too many CT scans because... Oh, you know, a lot of the PEs that we do diagnose are of questionable clinical significance, right? These like subsegmental PEs that could just, you know, these filling defects that 
you know, could be artifact. Is it a real PE? And, and, you know, our scans have just gotten so sensitive that we pick up a lot of PE that maybe isn't even like clinically relevant. Um, but, you know, I, I do feel pretty good about any of these, uh, these strategies. I, I, you know, the age adjusted DMI dimer is probably the, the best one, I think, where you get a pretty good, you know, safety rate and also pretty good efficiency. So, but ultimately you kind of have to decide what an acceptable failure rate is. Yeah, I think this is a really gray area that we've talked about previously that people continue to try to clarify somewhat successfully, maybe. I mean, you know, have have a diagnostic strategy and understand its pitfalls and, you know, go from there, I think is kind of the main message. And so we've joked before, I think that our algorithm sometimes is if you think about a PE, get the CT scan yeah. <clears throat> within the hospital. I think it also is worth mentioning that this is, um, you know, presumably and primarily uh, folks presenting to the ER. And so, you know, I still think some, some assessment of pretest probability or a risk score is, you know, necessary and should be part of the algorithm. And that, again, you should understand how many you may be missing and that you should give, you know, sort of return precautions and that a low number of misses is always, you know, to be expected. I mean, that's kind of how, you know, diagnostic reasoning, clinical reasoning works, right? You're going to miss some stuff, but as long as folks kind of understand that and, you know, represent if things don't get better or whatever, um, you know, I think that's acceptable. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's good to continue to look at this um, and, you know, to yeah, understand what your particular algorithm does or doesn't do well and realize that there's not there's never a perfect one. There probably won't be a perfect one, you know, years versus Wells versus Geneva versus Perk versus, you know, like they all have they're all validated, but they all have some pitfalls. And so we're not going to discuss those extensively right now. But, um, you know have some sort of workflow, I guess, is the point. Yep. Cool. Well, um, I have one more paper to talk about. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about anticoagulation and VTE way more as time goes on, but I'm going to talk about thiamine supplementation in patients with alcohol use disorder presenting with acute critical illness, um, a nationwide retrospective observational study. So this was in annals in the latest issue um, as well. Um, and is just, I thought, represents a target for improvement. Um, it's, yeah, just a retrospective study. They looked at 14,998 patients or ICU encounters with ICD or ICD-9 ICD or 10 codes for alcohol use disorder plus alcohol withdrawal, septic shock, TBI, or DKA as the diagnosis. So those are all associated with thiamine deficiency and, um, you know, Alcohol use disorder and these critical illnesses are both associated with thiamine deficiency. Thiamine deficiency causes Wernicke Korsakoff's and very, very if untreated. So, um, you know, kind of low hanging fruit um, and guideline based, give thiamine to prevent those things. And this just looked at sort of how are we doing? And so, um, of of these patients, 51% um, received thiamine overall. So um, within that group, that was 59% for alcohol withdrawal, 26% for septic shock, 41% for TBI, and 24% for DKA. So, you know, um, across the board, we're at about 50%, and this is something easy to do and probably should be high, you know, probably should be done 
on anyone who has a whiff of alcohol use disorder um, to prevent pretty serious, you know, complications and, and chronic disease um, in some instances. So um, in the ICU, folks, give your, give your patients that. I mean, if you think they, you know, abuse alcohol and on the floor, really, you know, this is just within the ICU because that was their focus. But I would wonder if we do any better on the floor, you know, maybe a little bit, but probably not. I mean, the yeah, ICU presumably it. has better stuff you know, not better stuff, but more critical things to worry about. Um, mm. And, you know, this is maybe low hanging fruit for like a pharmacy or even a nursing intervention, you know, at, at various centers. Um, not that it's not important and shouldn't be physician driven, but it's like something just like if the chart says alcohol, you know, auto populate with a thiamine order or something. Um, but then you get a warning and a red box that pops up and yada, yada, yada. We've talked about EHR based interventions before. But anyway, just remember the thiamine. Yeah, I was surprised that uh, the numbers were that low, you know, even for people coming in with alcohol withdrawal, 59% got thiamine. I feel like that that's the group of patients that if we were to like audit our charts, like probably close to 100% of people who come in with alcohol withdrawal are going to get thiamine. Like that's, that's the easy one. For me, it's mm-hmm. like the patients who come in with something else. And alcohol use disorder is not like the focus of the admission that maybe we're forgetting to order the thiamine on, you know, someone who comes in with like a pneumonia or something. So, but I agree. I think, you know, that you could build in some kind of a trigger where, you know, if there's, if there's any mention of alcohol use disorder in the chart or something where it recommends adding some thiamine, but I never know like how much thiamine to give people, you know, like we have like the high risk you know, algorithm and the low risk. And I'm like, well, how do you decide? (laughs) Like I just give, I just give everyone the IV thiamine when they first get admitted. And then I don't change it until the pharmacist reminds me that they're still getting IV thiamine five days later. (laughs) So there's, you know, you got to be careful about over-treating too, I guess. So. Right. Right. I just got (laughs) on a, on a related note, I just, um, eh, never mind. different maybe another day. We'll talk. I, I got my bill for my leg and the oh. med, the medication bill, you know, anesthesia and whatnot was $32,000. Wow. Like, there's, you know, I, I mean, insurance should pay for, for all of that, but like yeah. there was a problem with the claim and they needed the incident report and yada, yada, yada. So right now that, that claim or whatever is for $32,000 for like all these uh, injectable medications. And it's like, I wonder if I got IV thiamine. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, yeah, this guy yeah. Looks, looks like a drinker. Uh, <laughs> damn, that's nuts. 32. I know, right? It's absolute. The whole, don't get me started, man. The whole thing is completely absurd. Our system is not broken. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I got just one more main article I wanted to talk about. Um, This one was published in uh, February issue of Critical Care Medicine. It's called Disparities in Hypoxemia Detection by Pulse Oximetry Across Self-Identified Racial Groups and Associations with Clinical Outcomes. Uh, So this is an observational cohort study that looked at over 26,000 adults admitted to the ICU or patients who are undergoing surgery who were admitted to the hospital who had arterial blood gases measured with simultaneous measurements of pulse oximetry, oxygen saturations. And so they found that on average, pulse oximetry overestimated oxygen saturation as seen on blood gas by about 1.5 points. Um, So then they were looking at uh, 
rates of occult hypoxemia, which was defined as an arterial oxygen saturation of less than 88% on a blood gas with a pulse oximeter saturation over 92%. And patients who identified as black were more likely to have occult hypoxemia compared to patients who identified as white with an odds ratio of 1.65 and a p-value that was less than 0.001. So the absolute rates were 6.2% in black patients versus 3.6% in white patients. A previous study uh, that was published last year, I think, uh, found rates of 11.4% in black patients, but that study was much smaller and didn't have the simultaneous measurement of pulse ox and arterial blood gas, but still 6.2% of black patients um, in this scenario, ICU patients, patients getting surgery, had a cold hypoxemia that was not picked up, uh, picked up with a pulse oximeter. Um, they also looked at patients who identified as Asian or American Indian, um, and they also had higher rates of occult hypoxemia, but the finding wasn't statistically significant after they adjusted for confounding, largely because they didn't have enough people in those groups. They also didn't have enough patients of Hispanic or Pacific Islander background to include in the study. Uh, they found that occult hypoxemia was associated with an increased odds of mortality with an odds ratio of three in the surgical patients and 1.4 in the ICU patients. So, you know, it's a little hard to know what to do with this information. I think it's important that we recognize that there are certain groups, um, you know, based on skin pigmentation that the pulse oximeter is not going to be as accurate on. I don't know how you remedy that. Um, I don't know if like we basically need to you know, redesign pulse oximeters so that the, you know, and then use better validation cohorts. Um, but I think in the meantime, you know, if you have a patient with darker skin that you're worried about hypoxemia, you know, that may be a person where it's actually worth getting an arterial blood gas to confirm their true saturation and kind of compare it to what their pulse oximeter is. I hate to order a bunch of like unnecessary ABGs, but I think this is a scenario where maybe, uh, you know, a, you know, one-time ABG to compare to their pulse ox is, is worthwhile. Yeah. And the mortality association is, you know, pretty striking. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's just, it's, you know, sort of a secondary thing, obviously, but, um, yeah, you wonder if sort of, yeah, at the genesis of the devices, I guess that's where the issue is, um, you know, and right. Better validation cohorts are necessary. Um, but yeah, this has now been shown across several, you know, studies, um, mm -hmm. I think that we've also touched on previously. So, um, it seems legitimate and further highlights, you know, racial disparities and in healthcare inequity. Um, so yeah, um, thanks for bringing this and companies, you got to do better. <laughs> yeah. Um, Industry there. It's always their fault. Blame industry, uh, blame capitalism. No. So I, and then there was just one more stupid paper. I, well, not stupid paper. I shouldn't call it stupid, but there was one more critical, critical. that I wanted to just throw out. We're on there. our crusade. Dr. This Jenkins is, is on his crusade still. This is the against vitamin D. The D health trial, uh, randomized control trial on the effect of vitamin D on mortality. It was published in Lancet Diabetes and Endocrinology. February 1st. And uh, so what do you think would happen if you randomized 21,000 Australians with unknown vitamin D levels to a monthly dose of 60,000 units of vitamin D3 versus placebo for five years? 
based on our previous reporting, I'm going to go with, I would guess nothing happens to yeah. any of them. So there was no difference in all-cause mortality, cardiovascular mortality, or cancer mortality. Those were the outcomes they were looking at. Um, you know, the patients who got the vitamin D did have higher serum vitamin D levels. So if that's important to you, um, th- th- that, you know, supplementation is effective at raising numbers. Uh, but the patients, you know, interestingly, the patients assigned to the vitamin D group did have a numerically higher hazard of dying from cancer, but it was not statistically significant. But the p-value was pretty low, it was 0. 0.06. So that made me think, wow, maybe we're actually hurting people with vitamin D. I don't know. But anyway, this is another trial uh, that we should add to the, the, the dustbin of vitamin D trials that don't do anything. <laughs> Noted. We've got a large dustbin of those. Yeah, for sure. I'm on vitamin D right now, though. <laughs> I'm just trying to heal this, you know, heal this tibia. And my surgeon was like, oh, it's not going to hurt, but maybe it will hurt. It's going to give you cancer. Though I, I think for bones, vitamin D is good. Uh, for some, you know, chronic kidney disease, probably some benefit. Yep, yep. Well, thank you for bringing this critical piece of uh, data to our attention, Dr. Jenkins. You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, um, I guess I better let you get out of here so you can drive your mom to the airport. That's right. Gus is stirring. Luckily, she's here or else we would or he's awake. Otherwise, we would have had to have, uh, you know, cut this short. You know? We should get Gus on the podcast, though. I'm sure he's babbling, and we would like to capture some of that. We could maybe, maybe we should do a Gus and Birdie episode where we try to get through some trials with them on our laps, and they can just be talking <laughs> to each other and banging on the keyboard. That's a great idea. Gus loves the keyboard. Like whenever I'm in this chair, you know, at the computer, if he comes in here, he just like points and like wants to come up on the lap and just match. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Birdie, like the, my boys like can't stand it because anytime they're on their laptops in the living room, Birdie just like is a magnet to them and wants to like immediately start banging on their keys. (laughs) And she's very effective at like closing windows and like opening new ones just with a few clicks of random keys. So there you go. All right. Well, good episode. Thanks. Goodbye, everyone. Yeah. We'll see you all next time. See you soon. All right. See you, Steven. See you, dude.